0: Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show where we talk with accomplished chess players, authors, and personalities about their lives, their careers, and how to improve at chess. Perpetual Chess is brought to you through the generosity of its Patreon and PayPal supporters and by Chessable.com. Hey everyone and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. We have another adult improver edition and we have quite an accomplished young improver joining us this week. Uh, Our guest is a 29 year old mathematics graduate student who's working in finance. Um, He's taken his rating from 1567 to 2027 in less than two years. He is based in New York City, so like recent improver guest JJ Lang, uh, up until the coronavirus, he'd been able to take advantage of um, a robust local chess scene when he's not too busy with work and grad school, which I understand is not all that often, which makes his improvement feats all the more impressive, and we are eager to bring him in and hear all about them. So Andrew Zinn, how are you?
1: It's an honor to be here, Ben, um, and and a privilege um, to get to share some ideas with you. So thank you for having me.
0: I was thinking more more secrets than ideas, if that's okay with you. Are you going to reveal some secrets, Andrew?
1: Um, yes, if anyone will want them, absolutely. I'll reveal really many secrets. Sure.
0: Excellent. Okay, well, before we... Before you reveal the secrets, we got to tease people a little bit. So let's just dig into your background a little bit, Andrew. So um, what little internet sleuthing I was able to do uh, suggested to me that you were maybe one of these people who played chess as a kid and then took some time off and then got back into it. Is that accurate?
1: That's right. Um, But the kind of chess I played as a kid was, I would say, very different than the chess I'm playing today or really the way I'm approaching the game today is quite different from how I approached it then. So um, while they both bear on my ability to play chess and and on my improvement, I'm sure, um, it, it feels like two very different times.
0: Okay, and you were in uh, Pittsburgh, right?
1: Yeah, I grew up in Pittsburgh, which had a decent chess scene, among, among other things, a lovely city, um, and as a kid, uh, one, of the, one of the ways I was able to enjoy Pittsburgh is by studying with a grandmaster who lived locally, uh, Alex Shabalov. So,
0: yes, I was going to take that wild guess, having been a Pittsburgh resident. It could only be one.
1: Yes, and um, working with him was hugely beneficial, um, but as we're going to discuss later, I'm sure, um, I don't think any teacher can substitute the, the work that the individual has to put in him or herself
0: yeah yeah they they are not a panacea although certainly helpful and i'm i'm curious to hear what you learned from alex in particular um i lived as as i've mentioned to you i lived in pittsburgh for a while and even though he's kind of borderline legend in u.s chess circles he keeps a pretty low profile in pittsburgh so you didn't hear that much about him um he's not like hanging flyers or anything (laughs) and uh you know very very uh Active to this day in the U.S. chess circuit, so not always in Pittsburgh, even when he's based there.
1: Um, that's right. When I was growing up, uh, he was a very active tournament player and was traveling maybe half the year around the world to exotic chess destinations that I always thought were so cool.
0: Yeah, exactly. Um, So then, so at what age did you play in Pittsburgh? And then at what age did you uh, retire temporarily?
1: I began playing chess very young. Um, I, I, while my parents are American, I was largely raised by uh, what you could call uh, Soviet uh, godparents, I would almost call them. And, um, and so the, the husband, as a product of the Soviet school system, he wasn't an accomplished chess player, but like probably every one of his generation in the Soviet Union had some literacy in chess. And um, at first, he didn't want me to be exposed to the game, uh, fearing that it would dominate my life. Right. And, That's a valid concern. Uh, yes. And uh, it was actually my grandfather uh, who showed me how to play and I think they, my family members thought uh, I had a knack for chess and I seemed to do pretty well for my age. And so um, I began to play local tournaments.
0: The, the Jerry Myers specials?
1: Jerry Myers specials. and exactly.
0: uh, Shout out to Jerry if he catches wind of this. Uh, I, I hope he does. <laughs> uh,
1: he, will, he will remember me. And so yeah. thank you, Jerry, for, for instilling the love of the game.
0: Um, okay. And then, so you're a young kid and you're playing, and then at what point did you decide enough was enough for the, for the time being?
1: Well, nothing at that age was very conscious. Um, that uh, That's really a distingu- distinguishing factor between this time to chess and then. Uh, at that age, I think I viewed everything quite passively, and that was sort of a personal characteristic. Um, I probably felt that I was playing chess Um not entirely of, of my own accord. It was just kind of happening. I wouldn't say it was purely to please my family, but um, there was a very strong feeling. Uh, well, actually, I would say an, a lack of a strong feeling of of agency in what I was doing. And, yeah. and so at that age, I never thought about chess in a very proactive way. I didn't work on chess. I, I, had, t- I had lessons with a teacher whom I admired very much. And perhaps I could glean some things from what he was telling me. Um, But in a lot of ways, I was quite disengaged at that point in my life. And um, so I would say I decided to start playing chess about two or three years ago uh, when I realized that my love of the game was actually my own and wasn't being imposed on me.
0: Cool. Well, it's an important point you raise because I think that as someone who's you know done scholastic chess teaching, uh, you see that with young kids, kids who are just kind of being led around, you know, from soccer practice to piano lessons to to chess, and like you know, who who knows what they actually like. It's it, it's a good point. Um, and I've heard, like, uh, you know, off English author and uh, chess teacher Richard James has often, for that reason, advocated that it's better if you actually want kids to like chess, it's better to introduce them to, to them when they're older. But, you know, that's not necessarily when parents view it as best. And I don't think it's necessarily harmful for younger kids, although it can. It's hard, I think, for younger kids, especially if they don't, like, get knee deep in it right away. It's hard to appreciate the game when you're, like, six or seven years old.
1: Well... What's publicly available about Magnus Carlsen, I I think I recall that he learned to play chess um, at a pretty early age, but actually didn't start playing any competitive chess uh, until maybe around the age of eight. And his his father, who an an expert himself, maybe candidate master, um, I suppose didn't thrust the game upon him or didn't force it on him. Um, perhaps Magnus was able to acquire his own special love. And um, so perhaps that is what's, what's best for children. Um, I don't really know the biographies of all the great players.
0: Yeah, I mean, I do think most tended to start younger, but I mean, eight is pretty young as it is. But in any event, just to 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 finish this subject and get to bring it forward to what you've done in recent years, now that your your passion's ignited. So, at at what year, Andrew? Did you? What was your? So your rating, I guess, was fifteen sixty seven when you quit. It was um,
1: actually, it was actually lower. It was um, about fifteen thirteen. Maybe I played one rated game in about twenty fourteen. Got up to fifteen twenty six. Okay, that, so I left it off at at fifteen thirteen. Is, is oh wow!
0: Okay, my my research is shoddy. And uh, well, and and how old were you when uh, when you stopped playing as a kid? Uh,
1: Stop playing, really. I don't want to be contradicted by what's on the record, but
0: yeah, I, yeah, I hear you. Well, I, and I your best maybe,
1: guess, I think maybe fifteen. I really slowed down by the time I was thirteen. Okay, and, and had maybe completely stopped playing uh by fifteen.
0: Gotcha. Yeah. Okay. So now you're in New York a couple years ago and you get back into it. What what re-sparked your interest?
1: Well it was a long process. Um after I graduated from from the University of Michigan undergraduate, um I spent a year and a half back in Pittsburgh where I was doing academic tutoring and preparing to go to law school, um, preparing for the LSAT exam. And that was what I might call a very reformative period of my life where I, I took the time to rediscover my own interests. It's a lot easier, I think, if you don't have to pay rent. So I would work I would work maybe 30 hour, 20 to 30 hours a week teaching, um, private tutoring, and the rest of the time was spent studying what I wanted to. And it actually wasn't chess. Um, I took up the piano at that time in my life. Uh, music was another thing that I had done as a kid. And um, I began playing the piano mainly because I felt like I had unfinished business with, with classical music. And, and perhaps I started to feel uh, that that was something I really liked. And, and it is. It still is. Um, but that was actually very important to my later coming back to chess because it taught me how to develop a skill at an age where that skill usually isn't really developed by a lot of people and that was that was very important. I don't think I'd be playing chess this way otherwise.
0: Interesting. Well, I, yeah, I look forward to sort of hearing more concretely what lessons you took, but but let's start with your So then what what made you decide to transition to to more chess?
1: I went to law school and there wasn't a Steinway piano in my dorm. So <laughs> <laughs> I just and, and were you in New York for law school? Uh, yeah, I did my I did my second two years at NYU. I did my first year at Washington University in St. Louis, where there's a vibrant chess scene.
0: Yeah, to say the least. Yeah,
1: that probably helped spark my interest in coming back to chess. I went to the I almost want to call it the Sinkfield Museum, but yeah, (laughs) I went to the to the chess center there and 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 saw a lot of things that interested interested me and thought maybe I'd like to play. So
0: cool. Um, Okay, so so let's get down to it. So once you're playing, what's what's your process like? I mean, you're in law school, so I'm guessing you didn't have like tons of study time. Um, How were you approaching chess?
1: Right. So I approached it, the way I approached it was informed by how I studied the piano. So when I studied the piano, I was really concerned about really basic things that a young kid develops when he or she uh, learns a skill that someone coming to it from an adult might not have. So on the piano, we're talking things like trills, things like very nimble fingers, sight reading, um, being able to play Just being able to manipulate your hands well. um, It's one thing to be able to read the notes, but I think your improvement in the piano is really going to be capped if you don't build those fundamental building blocks. Like, can I move my fingers? Can I I let my wrist relax as I use my hand? So with chess, I thought of it very similarly. I, I thought in chess, there's a defining skill that strong chess players have. And that is an ability to see the board. Um, You see it in their ability to calculate blindfold. That's, that's obviously a very prominent way you can see that skill exhibited, but also their speed of calculation and the depth to which strong players can calculate. You start to realize that that is definitely a limiting factor of someone's of someone's growth in chess. So, although you 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 mentioned we talked, I, I played as a kid. I was yes, I reached fifteen hundred, but I was a very shoddy fifteen hundred. Probably, I had good intuition about where to put my pieces, but I didn't calculate. I really didn't calculate. So so I'll so as an adult, I didn't feel that my Returning to the game, I didn't feel that my calculation was at all decent. I mean, maybe I could see basic things, but to really hold the board in my head, that's thats what I started to put a priority on. So um, how how to, how to build that? Um, well, I studied checkmates in one. <laughs> I studied checkmates in two, and I studied checkmates in three, obviously the famous Polgar Polgar puzzle book. Oh, yeah. And a lot of people, a lot of 1500s, I might add, um, or, or higher 1600, I don't know, would raise their eyebrows at studying something like checkmate in one. Because someone might say, well, that's just for beginners. That's, you only do that, you only do that as you're learning how the pieces move, but I don't feel that way. I feel that when I'm looking at a simple puzzle, um, I'm training myself to, to view changes occurring on the board. I'm trying to keep the board in my own head in a very fundamental way. And so my practice of chess was not wide ranging. I wasn't, yeah, of course I was interested in openings and, look at what books might say or what books existed. I didn't really read opening books, getting back into chess. Um, so I was interested in other parts of the game and I played plenty online, like any, uh, like any chess player probably does. <laughs> but, but to train, to train, I trained as I came back to chess in the same way I train now, which is just to be able to see the board. That That's a start.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think that it's been a topic, obviously, we've been talking about a lot lately on the podcast, like this idea of just really drilling the basics. But of course, the first question that comes to my mind, Andrew, is, um, were you repeating them? Or like, did you just do the Polgar book once? Or were you making some sort of effort to repeat or memorize the patterns that you were seeing?
1: Definitely not memorizing. Um, The main concern was being fully engaged as I was doing it. So I'm taking mate in one because what simpler example exists? I mean, uh, most people who know the rules of chess can solve mates in one, but, but it wasn't just identifying the right move. It was forcing myself and it's, and it's not a violent process. The word force, we talk about hard work, like, like work is something painful. It, It does require a lot of exertion, but it, but, It's actually best when it's not too painful, just to try to ease my mind into imagining what the board looks like when one piece has been moved. And now we have a checkmate on the board to be able to really imagine the configuration of the pieces and how they, how they sit on the 64 squares. I think a lot of chess players, especially intermediate beginner, intermediate chess players who, which is really the only level that i'm at all qualified to speak about Um, i think a lot of them perhaps overestimate um, their ability to see the board i i think it's a good challenge to try to even just imagine the 64 squares in your head so that that is what i have put a premium on
0: Interesting. Yeah, I'm going to be doing a book recap with a friend of the podcast, uh, Jerry Wells, pretty soon. And we've been reading this book, Blindfold Chess. And it's actually, I mean, a lot of it's about the history of Blindfold Chess, but they also talk about sort of the method. And it does seem that like when you quiz these like wizards, the guys who do like the, you know, uh, yeah, Gureyev and more historically, like Pillsbury and Alakine and all these guys who do these 40 board simultaneously or whatever. They all start with basics. They all say, you know, first start with what color square each square is, you know, just just quiz yourself on that and then just, you know, practice visualizing a piece, you know, a bishop going from F1 to A6, Mm. um, stuff like that. So, yeah, what you're saying jibes jibes with with what they say in that book. But were you were you doing anything like aside from the Polgar book? Was there anything else you were doing that helped your visualization?
1: Oh, yeah, I, I did. I did read some other books. Um actually no other book cover to cover I would say, but I'm I'm getting close. So another book um which I would have to plug as, as being a particular favorite and, and a and a real gem is Lasker's Lasker's Manual of Chess.
0: <laughs> I read that one as a kid and I haven't looked at it since. I still have the descriptive notation version, but I loved it when I was a kid.
1: Well, What's amazing about Lasker is he can communicate with a player on almost any level. So if you're just learning the rules, he explains the rules in a very beautiful way, in a concise way. And I, I don't know if his book is well-suited to kids. I think his writing style is very mature. Um, I, think that, I think that he also appeals to a reader who is thinking very actively, which I think probably adults do the most um and lasker lasker the reason i like this book so much in addition to just really admiring the guy admiring that he could be an accomplished mathematician and uh, and the dominant chess player for most of his life um i i not sure how many other people have accomplished so much so i, I am a big fan of his but other than personal admiration, I think this book packs into 280 pages I'm seeing here, I have it in front of me, um, so many different parts of the game. And the guy understood chess so well that it doesn't really matter if there are some lines that haven't been computer checked. One, I don't see what it matters if you yourself can't refute, can't re- <laughs> The flaw right. analysis. Um, that's one thing. Of course, in openings, it does tend to matter because our opponents are playing with the benefit of of some research. And uh, So in openings, you probably want to be somewhat precise. Uh, but actually, the opening he, he goes through, he goes through many, many openings, and his lines are pretty good. His lines are pretty good. Some of them are real gems. Um, I particularly like the lines he gives uh, against the scotch defense for black uh, scotch uh, opening for for black he gives really good lines there and there's this famous book i guess uh ideas behind the openings by
0: yeah reuben fine right
1: yeah i never read that book but but i would say that's what this book actually accomplishes in its opening section it gives you a really strong idea of the strategic aims uh, of both colors in in many of the significant openings, and so even his opening discussion, which of course some would argue, oh, it's so dated. Well, yes, if these aren't the lines we'll be seeing. Uh, Caruana play against Magnus, perhaps, maybe he he might play some of them actually, but but at the level of let's say fifteen hundred, I, I don't see what that much matters. So. Um, and and he goes into other parts of the game so beautifully, and it's so concise. I don't see how someone who studies this very thoroughly, I don't see how someone who did that could fail to perhaps become an expert chess player.
0: Wow. That's a bold statement. Um, so, But before we follow up on that, I just wanted to throw in the first of a few uh, Patreon mailbag questions from Miguel Araspide, which I think you may have just answered, which is why I'm throwing it in. Mm-hmm. So... Miguel had asked what old classic player you like and why that particular player and the best book to read about that player.
1: Yeah, so of course I like Lasker's manual. He's not the only uh, classic player I admire a lot. I admire Richard Reddy a great deal and I have an antique copy of his Masters of the Chessboard Wow,
0: we have like the same book collection.
1: Yeah, and you have to be willing to read descriptive notation for a lot of these, but
0: Yeah, well, I was trying to actually a second ago I was trying to look up cuz I rem- I had descriptive of both books. I know there's a algebraic version of Masters of the Chessboard that's inexpensive too. I think it's like 12 bucks. So, great value. I mean, again, the same critiques you mentioned or whatever, not critiques disclaimers about like okay, maybe the analysis isn't perfect, but ready also as I'm sure you You agree being that you brought it up, I mean he does a great job explaining the openings. He gives a little bit of color on the players and their historical context and it's yeah, it's just just a nice book to read and Lascar, I haven't chased down yet if there's an algebraic version, but there is a twenty first century edition, so that sounds promising
1: mm, that does that does. I'm reading one of the descriptive ones, but i've i've I'm living with it,
0: okay um. So, but anyway, so, sorry to cut you off. But yeah, that's another classic, Richard. Ready? Any any others to add, or is there, were those your your two main go to? Well,
1: I've gone over games. One of the benefits of of studying with Shabalov as a kid, um, and I and I'm still in touch with him actually. But but when we were studying, we often looked at the games of classic players and. I don't want to be too self deprecating, but in hindsight, I feel like some of that was pearls to the swine. I, am <laughs> <I'm> not <laughs> fully appreciating. Yeah. yeah. But I, but I took certain, um, I took some color, even so I took some color from those, from those lessons. So I, I really love, loved uh, does, does love really go away? I'm not sure. I, I, I love Alachin or Alokhain. I, I, right. <laughs> I, I love very much. Um, and his games struck me as, as something so, so big. Like I don't, it's not my favorite composer, but almost like a Mahler symphony or something where it's just building and building and building. And it, it just never seems to stop. And he, and the tension just explodes and, Oh yeah, those Alakine games, of course, I'm I'm not an expert on Alakine. Um, I mean really not an expert on anything except my USCF title. Right. Um, but but his games are are magnificent to be compared with Great Symphonies, perhaps.
0: Excellent. So okay, you've done your reading. Um how often were you playing when when you made this jump?
1: So right. Um I I was playing a lot. I was playing probably an average of a game a week, rated, mm-hmm. rated game. Um, the Marshall Chess Club, as your New York listeners will know and as others may have heard of, um, and that's another great old player, of course, Frank Frank Marshall. Um, but the Marshall Chess Club is great in that When when there's no pandemic, uh, you can play. They they host probably about five nights a week of rated chess, if not six. I mean, Tuesdays, they don't tend to have it all other days. There's some rated play. Um, So for New Yorkers living reasonably close, that's it's an invaluable uh, opportunity.
0: Yeah. And that, of course, I mean, shout out to the Marshall. What can I say that hasn't already been said, but I mean, it certainly had poetic, uh, you know, resonance with me growing up in Philly and like starting to go to the Marshall as a teenager. And like, first of all, like the, the, the majesty of New York city and the West village, but, but also just like that beautiful building in the history. I mean, and you know, the fact that it's still, still doing well at a time when a lot of chess clubs, unfortunately, Uh, you know, find it hard to compete with internet chess. I mean, it's just just a special place. Um, But relating to your games, Andrew, so uh, we're going to jump in with the next question since it fits, since you're playing so much. uh, Giovanni Russo says, uh, wrote in to ask, he said, do you analyze your games? And if yes, can you please share some insights on how, engine, no engine, do you go shallow or deep, the whole game or a few key moments, lots of notes or a few key remarks? Do you go through your analysis at a later stage? And if yes, with what frequency?
1: Well, I think it's really hard to analyze your own games. Um, and I don't mean to say that you shouldn't try. But if you think about it logically or just rationally, you, during the game, you're exerting yourself almost to your maxim, maximum. I mean, really trying to sit there and win. And so to find on your own, improvements upon your own play, I don't think is that easy. Um, it's like, am I really a stronger player in analysis than I am over the board? I'm not sure. But none of this is to say that I don't. It's, I'm just saying it's not easy. It's, it's really good to have someone stronger with you to help you analyze, uh, maybe a teacher or a friend. That having been said, I'm sure that putting in the effort to analyze your own games um, in a really holistic way. And I mean, without the engine, of course, I mean, without the engine, because um, you don't have an engine with you when you're playing, but uh, to analyze the games yourself, it, it probably would build a lot of strength and is something that's an area where I, I kind of feel, and I'm not playing chess now because no one is, but when, when chess hopefully resumes, I think I'm going to set aside more time for analyzing my own games. Now, the reality, of course, is I put them in the engine. I mean, yeah,
0: okay, but (laughs) so you so you do look at them, but you put them in the engine. Was generally your approach?
1: I put them in the engine, and uh, on one hand, it tells me where did I first slip up in the opening, if I did slip up in the opening, and and that almost always happens. uh, Some yeah,
0: I think it's reasonable. I mean. I What you say about the importance of having the engine off when you analyze is something that uh, I would say there's some disagreement. Some people say some, you know, grandmasters, when I talk to them about it, some say yes, some say no. Jesse Cry, obviously a vocal proponent of doing it as analog as possible, <laughs> taking pages of notes on your games and um, not using an engine but I think even Jesse cry would be okay. Like if you forgot some theory, it's okay to look up the theory. You don't have to bang your head against the wall trying to figure out the theory on your own. No, of you know? course.
1: Yeah. So with a data database is always good. Like Lee chess database or chess base and, uh, about the grandmasters who say that, I, I, mean, of course they're extremely high ranking and brilliant players, but I just wonder how many of them developed their calculation skills with the engine running. Um, I, it, I, I just wonder if it's easy to say once you're already that good that the running engine doesn't bother you much, but I'm yeah, not.
0: it's a good point. And I should say like, if I were to go and compile what each grandmaster says, it's probably more, more common for them to say, keep the engine off than turn it on. Um, you know, when you're analyzing, but, but, you know, the, we're talking mostly about adult improvement and you know, there's, um, there's a tr- Everything's a trade-off. So yes, you could, I mean, if you only have a finite number of hours to week uh, to study per week, say you're someone who's super busy and you've only got say five hours that you're able to dedicate to chess. Like, um, is it really the best? And you're maybe you're playing uh, say, safe, you know, five yeah Yeah. one tournament a month on top of that so maybe another five hours or something depending on the time control like is is the best use to spend those whole five hours going through the games like without an engine or is it to like split the baby and do some engine analysis and then you're able to work on the other aspects of your game as well like who knows you know
1: yeah and and the way react like i'm speaking about ideals but the way reality played out, I, I did not sit and do painstaking, uh, but like work, um, analyzing my own games. I often just left it to the engine or I went over it with a stronger player. Often, yeah. often I would try to go over it with a stronger player.
0: So, but you didn't have a personal coach at, at this stage of your life.
1: Well, I, I mean, I have had, I have reconnected with, with Grandmaster Shabalov and we've had a number of sessions together. Um, at the Marshall, there are many masters who play and, um, all perhaps with something valid or stimulating to say about a game. And, and so it's, it's good to have them around. I think a book is, I think an engine or a book, I mean, like an opening book. I, yeah. So, I mean, what I said to start was it's really hard to analyze your own games. And that's also what you're saying. I mean, to analyze a game that you put your full effort into and, uh, and you're a class, pl- I mean, you know, 2000 and below, how much are you going to be able to improve upon your play? That's, that's, I, I come back to that. So it is hard. Yeah.
0: And I think a lot of the receive wisdom about it is because that's what you had to do. like, when there, when there were no engines and, you know, coaches were harder to come by um, and there was no, like, decode chess that you could, like, input your game into and it spits out an algorithm with, like, actual pros, you know, telling you about the game, like, it might not be perfect, but it helps. Um, yeah. you, what else were you going to do? Whereas now there's, like, the world is your oyster.
1: Probably, like, probably the engine, using the engine is a net good, when when reviewing chess games for an adult improver.
0: Yeah. I mean it, it should have some role, I would think, is <laughs> it's, it's safe to say. Yeah. Um but okay, so l- let's try to break down more what you actually did though. So you're you're playing a lot, which I think obviously it can't be stressed enough. That's just so there's so important. There's just no substitute for the actual over the board in my opinion, like, you know, go to the place, face the person, feel the tension, play yeah. the game. And you know, that in itself is inspiring to go over it. Um, and then you're reading these classics and you do look at your games, but not like insanely intensely, but like how many hours a week do you think you were doing chess total on average?
1: In a perfect night, I can, I would be able to spend three hours on chess. I, wow.
0: Even during law school.
1: I don't have a family. Uh, yeah. I, I, again not every night right it would be a perfect it would be a perfect night to be able to spend that much
0: so but what do you think on average per week how oh, many how many hours per week count like counting playing 5 uh, 5 games per month or whatever
1: yeah uh, probably about 10 hours a week oh with, okay yeah uh with the playing no if we include the playing maybe i was sinking 15 hours almost 15 hours into chess
0: Huh. and it seems like your law school grades were okay right? I mean you're getting a finance job or at least you're doing an internship so um it's impressive yeah. stuff Andrew.
1: <laughs> yeah and I'm uh and I'm studying math now also so I mean I'm still in graduate school so wow. But but this summer this summer I've been working so I've I've been facing the reality of having a pretty demanding job at the right. at the same time as being interested in studying chess.
0: Do you have any sense that you have a facility for chess? Like, do you feel like you pick things up faster than, than some people or is it too hard to judge?
1: As a kid, that was what it seemed like. Um, I, I was, standards have really changed by the way. Uh, I was state champion or co-champion of Pennsylvania, um, Mm -hmm. for K to six, and i was i don't know 13 or 1400 now now to be Pen- pennsylvania state champ at that age i imagine you have to be at least 2000 and and so what seemed good then does not seem as good today
0: yeah but yeah as we do with the athletes though it's best to compare compare with your peers from that generation so
1: oh, yeah from my own time and it's—I'm not an old man yet, so it feels funny saying it. But right. from my own time, I was—I was good. I—I I was one of the best players in the state. I—I I was co-champion for my age, uh, I think, two times. So, um, so it went well, and that was without much work, but with lessons with a with a great chess mind. Um, but then, as a why could I improve from fifteen hundred to two thousand? I think is just about the how dedicated I've been about thinking about chess and the work I've put in. I doubt there's any substitute for that,
0: yeah, yeah, I mean ten to fifteen i mean ten hours a week plus playing that that's a lot, especially you know while while pursuing these advanced degrees um. If yeah, I had so a friend-
1: I, if I had a family, it wouldn't, it wouldn't be happening. I, I cannot imagine if I had a, a child or something that wouldn't be happening.
0: Yeah. And being in New York, uh, again, as with JJ Lang, like it's just, just to be able to play that much. is just so huge.
1: Yeah. Um, I would agree.
0: Um, okay. So Andrew, we're gonna, we're gonna pick this up in a minute, but I want to take a break and hear from our friends at chessable. So the latest from our friends at Chessable is the Magnus Touch the Endgame. As you might infer from that, this is an endgame course designed by Magnus Carlsen and his second GM Peter Hein Nielsen, With help from Chessables, I am Christoph Zelecki, aka Chess Explained. It has 158 training positions that they can quiz you on with Chessables Move Trainer 2.0. Move Trainer of course being their proprietary technology that uses spaced repetition to quiz you repeatedly on key positions and make sure that you learn them. So go check that out as well as their many free offerings as well as the classic players you can learn from all on Chessable.com. Alright so Andrew let's try to get a little more granular on your actual study. So on a good night you say 3 hours a week are you kind of like hopping around between activities or is it just like whatever book you're enjoying and and how regimented are you about like particular modes of study and playing online as you mentioned you do as we all do what's what's your general approach to to that stuff?
1: I try to be pretty regimented. Um I try to make sure I'm working working excuse me, on a uh, a few books at any given time. I mean, obviously not reading them at the same time, but um, maybe a rotation, kind of like an exercise circuit. So if I were going to the gym, I wouldn't just curl biceps the whole time. Right. Yeah. Um, but that said, I I definitely lean toward exercises that train my ability to keep the board in my head. And, um, and I try to be pretty regimented about it in the same way of, let's say, playing scales in music. So, I mean, I have a friend who is a fine amateur pianist and the way he practices is he picks up the sheet music of a, of a, uh, Beethoven sonata, which is hard. I mean, for an amateur pianist, that's hard. And he'll just work his way through it and he'll grind and grind. he will get pretty sounding, pretty decent at that sonata. Um, When I practiced piano, I would really focus on scales and the technical work. And I was an adult, I was an adult improver in piano too. So um, I don't know if this really directly answering the question, but it's, it's a very honest answer. Okay.
0: Um, So, you, you keep mentioning visualization and you mentioned the Polgar book. Um, is there anything else concrete like, that you might suggest? Like, are you doing studies? Are you playing blindfold yeah. games? Like anything along those lines?
1: I, well, I can talk about some other books I've used in a serious way. So, uh, uh, Kotov's um, think like a grandmaster. So that's a book where people will say, Oh, you don't Listen to what he says, it's it's this isn't how grandmasters analyze at the board. But I think that criticism is actually missing the point of what the book's good for. Maybe Kotov thought that people should do that. I don't know if he really did. What I what I do know is that to read that book, he makes you work for it. I mean, yeah. I read that book without a board. So I try to play through the lines in my head. And sometimes he'll give sequences as long as 30 moves, 30 plus moves. And so I would read Kotov's book and I would try to, I would try to, uh, under in these 2010 in these eight, 10, and it's a muscle, you build this up. So you start at the mate in one, you can see one move forward, then you can do two. And then all of a sudden you start to, you can see a lot of moves ahead. And, so I mean, it's no—it's no different from going to the gym. So the for so with the cutoff book, um, I uh, would try to understand the point of every move in the sequence. Like, why is this a? And the point doesn't have to be some profound thing. i, I mean, if if it were some profound thing, I'd be a GM by now. But right, it's uh, the point is like, is my bishop hanging over there? <laughs> is yeah. is there a fork? I mean, maybe maybe you don't miss. Maybe once you practice, you don't miss that pieces are directly hanging. But you start to you can still miss like one move tactics when you're doing this blindfold. So, um, people can argue on the chess.com forums about that book not being modern, and you should read. I don't know who uh, for whatever reason John Donaldson came. I don't even know who that is. <laughs> uh-huh. I, <laughs> he's been
0: on the show he's a great guy but I think yeah. more likely more likely they would say Jakob Agard
1: <laughs> uh, they would say Jakob Agard and I've had a peek at those books those look really good um, yeah. the Agard books
0: so Andrew I recently not, in the past year did a reread Think Like a Grandmaster and did did a podcast about it with uh, cognitive scientist Christopher Shabri. and I, I definitely get what you're saying it's a very concrete book it's kind of shocking how long the lines were and of course since I was kind of trying I had read it as a kid, but I was trying to sort of power through it in order to, to, to meet the deadline of doing one per month, right. um, one podcast per month. So I did not visualize it as much, but sort of what I'm inferring from, from what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that, it's not even so much about which book it is as the way that you're approaching it. The fact that you, you really aren't just kind of skimping when you go through the variations that you're consciously not having the chess set in front of you, but working really hard to visualize everything they say. Is that, is that a fair interpretation, Andrew?
1: That's exactly what I'm trying to say.
0: Okay. Yeah. That makes sense. I mean, it all comes back, you know, no matter, no matter what route you take, it comes back to, to deliberate practice and, 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 Um, how hard you work at the task you do and not just sort of, and active versus passive learning. Mm. Um, Okay. And I I have an, I have one last Patreon question from you, Andrew. Did you have something you wanted to add?
1: Uh, No, go ahead.
0: Okay. Sorry. Uh, So this one is, and again, it's kind of tangentially related to what we've already been discussing. It's from uh, Deepankar Ghosh, recent contributor to the show. So thank you Deepankar for the support. And he says, Hi, Andrew. Your jump from 1500 to 2000 is in just two years is impressive to say the least. I'm a 31-year-old working professional with a USCF rating around 1850. I can probably spare 30 minutes to one hour max every day to work on chess, maybe 1.5 hours on weekends, but I do aspire to hit that 2000 rating mark. What are your training techniques that you think gave the most improvement for time invested? And particularly, what would you suggest for someone at my age and rating to improve? Looking forward to hearing your insights. Thanks, Deepankar.
1: I think that's a great question because soon, uh, even the 10 hours that I think I can spend on chess a week may, may themselves dwindle uh, for a variety of reasons. So I've thought about this question. And as you say, it's related to what we said. Um, I think it's important to pick a really good book. Uh, but good doesn't mean dogmatic, good doesn't mean perfect, it doesn't mean it was written by a computer or it was written by uh uh Siegbert Tarish. I mean it it just means a good book. So you and, and a book hopefully with a good bit of analysis and maybe even some exercises. So you take such a book and maybe 30 minutes to 60 minutes a night, you really immerse yourself in it, trying to visualize, trying to understand the purpose of what you're reading. And on the weekend with those one and a half hours a day, maybe you go through a game. Maybe I haven't read it yet, but maybe uh, Zurich uh, 53. 53. Yeah, uh, That's a book I hope to read at some point. I Believe it or not, I do hope to move forward in time with my, <laughs> with my, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually something, perhaps I, I should talk about for a moment. But um, I, yeah,
0: I was meaning to ask you about that because I mean, you know, going to a top law school and getting a graduate degree in mathematics—that's heady stuff to begin with. But actually, I mean, the finance world is not known for its uh, lackadaisical work schedule. So, no. <laughs> so yeah, it'll be. I hope you're able to 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 keep grinding.
1: Well, I think that I think that. And answer to that question is I could be working 14 hours a day and I still believe I could. Now, again, this is assuming no family. <laughs> once you right. have a, a family, maybe, I don't know, maybe it shouldn't be playing. I, I don't, I don't. <laughs>
0: It really does change everything.
1: Uh, but, but with no family, um, even if I were working 14 hours a day and some days I do, I mean, at my, at this summer job, i there've been days like that. Um, I could still make time for 30 minutes of, of a good book. So I, I've never been so busy in life that I couldn't read a little book. And then it becomes a question of, if you read a little book, are you going to read it passively? Are you going to just want to take it in? Or are you are you coming at it? Are you going to really in, engage? Um, and so uh, the asker of this question I'm, I'm sure he already knows his own answer that if he, if he engages in his materials meaningfully, if he does it for 30 minutes a day and an hour or two on the weekends, um, I have no doubt that he'll, he'll pass me up soon enough.
0: Nice. Yeah. And it sounds like you guys are in a pretty similar life situation. I mean, he's a couple years older than you, but um. so where does, uh, where does internet chess, I mean, okay, now it's the middle of the pandemic. So that changes things. But before the pandemic, were you playing blitz online? Were you playing slower games? And does that count as your chess time? You know, these are the questions we all wrestle with.
1: Right. It, w- it would come in fits and starts. Um, there'd be times and probably corresponding to the amount of stress I was under in my life. Like online chess can really be escapist. I mean,
0: it really can. I, as I was telling you <laughs> before we started recording, I've, had a rough couple days and chess just has this amazing ability to, to filter out the rest of the world.
1: Yeah. So it, it, well, it's, it's its own little world. Um, online chess. I try to play less. I have an account on Lee chess. That's just my name. <laughs> and uh, uh, a friend, a, a close friend of mine who's uh, who's a master, an FM, he and I kind of, Agreed that we would take a break from online chess, so um, <laughs> we did something very silly, but but uh, completely rounded off our ratings. So my uh, on Lee chess, my blitz rating is exactly twenty one hundred, and my uh, rapid rating is exactly twenty three hundred, and <laughs> so kind of so kind of I can't uh, if I start to play, I'll disturb the harmony of those. Right. <laughs> nice. So my answer to online chess is I'm trying my best not to play it. I, even even
0: during the pandemic?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I think online chess helped me grow from about 1500 to 1800. Um, and that was because I don't even think studying chess is what made me get to 1800. Like all this stuff that I'm talking about right now, that's really what it's taken to get from uh, class A to expert and hopefully from expert to titled um, I don't really like that word I'm just say master from from expert to to master which is of course the next goal um, I would say the study has been instrumental in going up rating classes now uh, but to get from 15 to 1800 uh, playing online chess helped and uh, that was because I was an adult, so I was coming at the game a little differently. I'd studied some advanced math in college, and so I, I learned to do logic just a little better than I could as a kid. So, so I kind of figured out that chess is a logical game, and you, there, the way to the way to play it is to look at different moves and variations. That sounds so silly, but I mean. As a 1500, I really, like, I mean, I understand, I didn't really understand that. So, so online chess did help me once I had a good framework for looking at the game. And that is a a rational one, um, playing online chess, it exposed me to a lot of different openings It exposed me to, um, different situations. I mean, so I think it can be beneficial. Uh, obviously there's stories in the chess community and I don't know if they're pro propagated by uh hikaru himself but he's he often talks about playing online chess as having been the uh, the the main tool for him to grow i don't know how yeah. much i believe him actually but <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah it's it's hard to believe but he's been sticking to that story like all along so i know i know
1: well i don't know <laughs> the guy. i don't know the guy so uh i know, i have no reason to uh to doubt his uh his honesty but maybe it's a little nonchalant i don't know
0: yeah that could be um so what about what's your approach been to openings andrew like how 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 much time do you devote to them relative to your more general chess study
1: my openings are a serious liability i'll always be in trouble at this point against a well-prepared opponent um my, my opening i'm lucky to get through the opening right <laughs> yeah I, my future opponents are listening to this and loving it um, right <laughs> <laughs> anyone anyone who's well prepared is gonna get me into some trouble
0: <laughs> yeah so yeah don't don't walk into their prep especially after this interview
1: <laughs> wow well, and I play I play all these mainline openings too only to make matters worse I mean I play I'll play like the Rui Lopez or or you know what a main line of, of everything I, of, I'm not, I'm not uh, married to those lines. Uh, I'm willing to, I'm willing to deviate. Sometimes I'll start a game with Knight F3 or D4 just to, just to feel some variety. Um, but uh, yeah. So as far as how I study openings, well, the sad thing is that a lot, most, I have studied a lot of openings, but most of what I've studied is like totally irrelevant. So I've studied a for The opening I've sunk the most time into, for instance, is, uh, is the uh, Bishop C4 variation of the King's Gambit, the King's, Bi- wow. the King's Bishop's Gambit. Why did I do that? <laughs> I, mean, yeah. I rationalized it. I rationalized it by saying, I don't want to ever be scared of someone playing. Because if you're, let's say, not a master, or grandmaster, or whatever, if you're unprepared in general, the King's Gambit could be really scary. So, um, so I guess that's how I rationalized it. So, warning, warning again to um, all future opponents: if you if you do play the King's Gambit against me, I I, I think I will be prepared for that.
0: Nice. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, Andrew, you mentioned that you're kind of digging yourself a hole in the opening, and we know you're playing in New York, where they have a lot of action chess. So, I'm just curious: what when you do play these tournaments, what time control are you? generally playing like is there action involved or is it generally slower games
1: i'm playing both i'm playing the i mean it's not in the present anymore it's already more than half a year ago but maybe i played in february so half a year ago uh i i was playing sometimes the thursday night games uh the action at the marshall those are those are rapid those are what would be considered rapid chess um
0: yeah, twenty-five-five or something. Yeah,
1: yeah. Uh, but my preference is for the slow games. I really, okay. I enjoy digging into the digging into the game and digging myself out of um, <laughs> an opening um, hole. My opening knowledge, yeah.
0: Okay, and just a couple more, Andrew. Um, do end games have a special place in your study approach, or it sounds like with the calculation work you're doing, they might just sort of fall under that umbrella? Is that the case, or do you make special time to study end games? I take care to
1: look at some end game studies. Uh, I'm not really well versed in theoretical endings, but I think uh, Magnus Carlson said the same thing, and <laughs> and I'm uh, I don't know about a thousand points weaker than him, so. Uh, I really don't know theoretical endings very well, um, but I but I do studies. I do endgame studies to improve my calculation, and um, and uh, and I know the if if we get bishop and king, bishop and knight over the board, I'll probably be able to to set checkmate. Um,
0: but gotcha. But and I'm putting you on the spot, Andrew, but do you have any um, recommendations for resources for studies? I feel like uh, club level players are always it's harder to find studies that are not just like too hard, you know
1: There's a really great one and and it's again Polgar. so similar the 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 checkmating book, which isn't all checkmates, by the way, it has other stuff in it, but uh, that checkmating book is the really famous one but he has a similar book actually uh that's just called chess endgames by polgar and it's a compilation of something like 4000 studies and these aren't they start of course easy and and he kind of builds gradually and it's an amazing book if you if you're willing and uh if you really care about chess i would assume you know you'll budget yourself accordingly so spend a hundred dollars and get this book and and uh it's a really wonderful book with a lifetime supply of of these studies
0: well somehow i didn't know about that and obviously you can't argue with uh laszlo polgar's results so that's that's a great recommendation you know how to
1: train yeah so.
0: um cool so andrew uh before we let you go i just kind of wanted to get a sense of like w- w- what's next do you have a concrete goal like w- what what do you have planned once we finally get to play chess again,
1: yeah. tournament chess? So so surprisingly, in light of everything I've been saying, I don't plan to stay in the chess stone ages. Um, <laughs> I may be studying, I, I'm studying a bunch of material from the 1930s now and earlier, um, but that's really to expand my capacity to, to play the game, to see the board, as we were saying, to understand it on a basic level. Um, I don't think that my approach or what I'm doing is really a result of ambition. Uh, it's it's a des- it's not a desire to be contrarian. Uh, I'm not trying to be old school for its own sake. I'm doing what I think will best prepare me to to continue growing as a player. Um, so eventually, or not even eventually, but in real time, I'm I'm kind of progressing chronologically through through chess. So. Still reading uh, Reddy's Masters of the Chessboard uh, collection. There's there's Alakine's book. There's um, there's Bronstein. There's And then there's Fischer. And then already you're kind of in modern chess. So um, obviously a, a 27, 2800 rated player would say, well, it's not quite modern 30 years ago. But for any club player, any for anyone that would care what I have to say, I would say that's modern enough. <laughs> yeah but um but i do i do plan to continue improving uh i my i have not been training with the goal of making 2000 i've been training with the goal of becoming a good player and um my ambitions don't really have a ceiling but
0: well 2000 is a good player i i have to say but but uh but i get what you're saying
1: yeah i i i don't have a limit i i i Want to pursue a career outside of chess, so that will that will limit the growth to some extent. But um, but no goal is really too high, and uh, I'm I'm curious to see where where things will go.
0: Awesome. Well, hopefully you can keep it up, and we can uh, check in on you in a few years and uh and see how it's going.
1: Well, I I hope so too. So for that to happen, uh, there'll have to be chess again sometime.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that would be nice <laughs> for reasons beyond chess, but, 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 uh, the chess would be a nice bonus. Yes, it would. Okay, cool. So Andrew, um, if anyone would like to ask you any questions or has follow-ups, um, are you, are you okay? Are you, you're not on social media, are you?
1: No. Um, I, I decided I could only be on Leechest, so I don't have uh, I don't have Facebook and.
0: Okay, but you already revealed your Leechess handle, so
1: <laughs> they're welcome to write me. I'll 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 give my email here. It's okay. My, it's my last name, which is Zin. at Gmail.
0: Okay. Yeah. And I'll put a hyperlink in to the show description as well. Um, but yeah, thanks and congratulations, Andrew. Uh, you're, you're pretty modest about it, but it's not not so easy to do what you've done, especially with a lot of other responsibilities. So congratulations and uh, keep up the good work. And uh, thanks for thanks for sharing your secrets as promised.
1: Well, thanks, Ben. And it's, it was an honor to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: Special thanks as always to my producer, Matthew Passy, and thanks to those who continue to help spread the word about Perpetual Chess positive reviews on podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Blowing comments on YouTube help people discover the show as does telling a friend or sharing it on social media speaking of which you can follow me on Twitter I'm at beneficial one or join the perpetual chess Facebook group and continue the conversation about the latest interview sometimes the guests even weigh into these discussions the perpetual chess Instagram page is back in action so lots of ways to stay engaged as they say but most of all of course I want to thank those who provide financial support to the show especially right now Now with all this COVID craziness going on in the world, most of all, I want to thank Chessable for sponsoring the show and to everyone who kicks in via PayPal or the Perpetual Chess Patreon page. I also just put up a little donate directly link on the Perpetual Chess webpage where it says donate. But again, if you're not in a position to donate, I'm happy to have people listening and just enjoying the show. So without further ado, I'd like to give thanks to the people who helped make Perpetual Chess possible. I would like to give thanks to the following people and entities. Chessable.com, Quality Chess Books, The Capital City Chess Club, The Apprentice Twitch channel, Andrew Alhaji, Andrew Bach, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porteau, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, The Chess Central's Chess Blog, Chris Flanagan, Dan O'Hanlon, Danny Davidson, David Schreiber, I am Dimitri Schneider, I am Eric Rosen, Farraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Greg Harst, Greg Natel, Greg Shahadi, Guven Manet, James Kennedy, Jens Green, John Jernigan, John Rockefeller, John Cromarty, John MacArthur, Kelly Palmer, Kevin O'Callaghan, Lucio Casada Silva, the Law Offices of Stuart Katz, LilaAnalysis.com for cloud-based Leela Engine Analysis, Michael Kahn, F.M. Michael Oblin, Mike Zalazny, Mr. Mike Shahadi, the famous Mr. Dodgy, Peter Zodi, Reuven Fisher, Seattle Chess Club, Steven Martinez, Thomas Stanix, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of Strong Chess, Todd Kennedy, Wayne Bean, and I also would like to thank the following. Aaron Waffler, Ace Viega, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Alex Pejas, Andy Ryerson, F.M. Andre Terakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Anita Deer, Barry Hessian, Better Chess Training, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brett Howard Lynn, Brian Mullis, Chad Hilton, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Wayne, Scott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Chris Lott, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Selecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsburg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Saylor, David Bleskicek, David Cramley of Chessable.com, Dalen Shelton, Dirk Decker, Drake Domingue, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ethan Smith, Ian Mason, I am Elect, Donnie, Ariel, Fox Valley Chess Club, Frances Latart Lavoie, Frank Torter MD Gary Andrews Gary Lewis Gert Vandervelt Gerard Barto, Giovanni Russo Hanshu Harris Srinivasan Jacob Kovacs, Jack Perry James Aspenwall, James Bonastia, James Muir Jason Willem J. Deep Chakrabarty Jeff Anderson Jeffrey Martello Yep Hoyland Jerry Wells, Jim Ratliff, J.J. Snod, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Slater, Jordan Goodwin, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Jen Shahadi, Joe Rocky, John Thompson, GM, Josh Fridell, I.M. Kari Christensen, W.G.M. Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Kevin Pryor, I.M. Koscikowiczki, Krishna Gopalakrishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Reiforth, Laura Boyovsky, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matthew Passi, Matthew Tedesco of Seattle Chessmeetup.org, Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Miguel Erespide, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Nigmat Mulajanov, Olaf Mueller Michaels, G. M. Pascal Charbonneau, Passi Passan and Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Randy Temple, Ricky Grahova, Richard Hallenbeck, Robert Turner, Roy Yearwood, Ryan Berg, the Say Chess YouTube channel, Scott Doherty, Scott McKinnon, Sebastian Finsterwater, Shane Unger, Stefan Roller, WGM, Tatyab Abrahamian, Tim Brennan, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, Tom Edsel, Tomasz Kolmanich, Tony Rotella, Tyrin Price, Vishnu Srikumar, William Brock, William Juniper, William Hogarth, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, and last but never least, Zhivko Storyanov. Thanks for listening, everyone. I will catch you all next week.